I mean, I'm always amazed when I deal with people at a very high level sometimes that they have a good story to tell. They have something that is interesting that they are doing, but they, like I used to, just utterly lack the skills to envisage how it would come out as a TV story. They've kind of written a really great press release and they're like, check this out. And you're like, well, that's a good start. I mean, there's something interesting in there, but that's not going to go on television. I'm really, you know, like, and sometimes it's quite a surprise to people because particularly when you're in an organisation, it's your whole thing. This is, you know, if you're in comms, let's say, for an organisation, like, this is all you do all day. You think this is the most amazing stuff ever. It's not. Hi, I'm Ben Hart and welcome to Storycraft, a podcast about the art and science of storytelling. I've been in the business of telling stories for more than two decades. As a journalist, communications advisor and now heading up my own storytelling-led comms agency, Fireside. In this work, I've always been fascinated by great stories. Why did they work? What made them resonate and connect with people? Because stories are more than just things that entertain us or tools to get people to do the things we want them to do. Stories help us make sense of an increasingly chaotic world. And there's science to back this up. We now know the brain is hardwired to sort through the estimated 11 million data points we're processing at any given moment, pick out the best bits and turn it all into a meaningful, coherent picture by assembling it into a story. In this first six-episode season of Storycraft, I'll be sitting down and talking to people who have poured their stories into this great big sea of information and watched them float to the top and into our consciousness. You'll hear from all sorts of storytellers who will share what they've learned about making stories that simply worked. So whether you're in the story business, think storytelling might make you better at what you do, or you just love a good yarn, I promise you'll take something away from these conversations. When everyone has an instant source of news in their pocket, getting them to sit down and watch their traditional evening news has never been harder. And you could argue it's even more difficult when your subject matter is the dry stuff of finance, interest rates, currency movements and stock market valuations. But if anyone knows what stories get people watching, it's ABC Business reporter Dan Ziver. One of the most well-liked figures in Melbourne journalism, Dan has a prized black book of contacts gathered over 20 years in the game. If there's someone who can add value to a story, Dan's probably got their number. Just as importantly, they'll take his call and there's a fair chance they'll agree to participate in the story. Three years ago, he was handed his toughest news assignment yet, covering the Royal Commission into misconduct in the banking, superannuation and financial services industry, otherwise known as the Hain Royal Commission. Dan made what could have been a series of complex legal hearings into riveting stories of tragedy and injustice. They were often compelling, sometimes funny, but always very human. He turned this reporting into a book, a bunch of bankers, a year in the Hain Royal Commission. But we'll get to that later. Dan started his media career as a print journalist. After stints as an entertainment reporter and in the US covering Barack Obama's historic election win in 2008, he ascended to one of the plum jobs in Melbourne journalism, senior producer for ABC Mornings, working for legendary and now retired presenter John Fain. In this role, Ziffer was in the driver's seat, steering Fane as he told the daily story of the city, setting the news agenda and shaping how people in Melbourne saw the events of the day. Then, after seven years, he surprised colleagues by walking away. Look, when I left that program, uh, this is kind of the apex of news and current affairs in Victoria, relatively powerful position where you are frequently talking to the leaders of 
every top organisation and in politics and, and federally as well and kind of on top of national issues. So it was a very prestigious position and people kept asking me, like, why are you leaving? To which I would usually respond, like, I've done it for seven years. Like, that is enough. It's a really wonderful role and similar roles are, are great. They're really taxing. You are getting up at four-ish in the morning. You are consuming an immense amount of media. You're under a lot of pressure. You've got to produce a two and a half, three and a half hour program every day. And it's got to be kind of of that day. There's very little you can set up ahead of time. If you set up too much, you'll just throw it out. So there's a lot of pressure. As ever with the ABC, there's kind of a rolling roster of junior staff who leave because, you know, they're interested in eating uh, or they have outrageous dreams like buying a car one day or something. So you're constantly kind of working with an evolving team and enduring a lot of criticism. You know, like there's, there's, you know, people are never happy with the program, let me tell you. So it's a very taxing role, a very enjoyable one and you certainly have a great team and a a great sense of of being part of a big conversation particularly in the city particularly in the city where you live but you reach a point and that I'd reach my point which was I'd really like to sleep in until there's like a five or a six on the clock talk us through the daily process you'd go through of putting together a show like that so you've got about an hour and a half so you generally have an editorial meeting at seven before the program starts at 8 30 you consume four or five newspapers depending on the day At high speed, you go through all your emails, you text people about things that are happening, you get texts and messages from people about things that might be going on that day, you talk to the newsroom about what they're doing, and you have to distill. And like being a newspaper editor, you have to, even though people don't listen to a radio show in the same way as they do an opera, right? They dip in and out, they get bits, they're not going to get the whole thing. But you have to have a balanced show. You know, I've worked on other shows with, for example, I used to produce Steve Price, and he'd lay out, you know, what he wanted for the show. And we'd say <laughs> frequently, like, that's fantastic. Do you think anyone will listen to it? Like, it's just like, it was like four hours of death and destruction. Like, just the most grimmest, awful stories, like, on and on and on. We're like, we, we've got to do those stories. We will do them. But, like, we also need to do Man Who's Grown 80 Kilogram Pumpkin. Like, we have, you know, people need this. When I worked at The Age, I was in, uh, I used to cover entertainment. And frequently I'd, I'd file stories. I thought, you know, okay, nothing, not newsy, not, not nothing, no particular kind of hook to them. And I'd wake up the next day and they'd be on page three, sometimes page one. And I worked out after a while that, first of all, they generally had good photos. But secondly, it was always on days where the news was so unceasingly grim that they just needed something. You know, like they needed something to drag people through to the further pages of the paper. You just can't. Some days are bad. Some days are awful days. But most days people need light and shade. They need different things. And when you're weighing up those stories, and let's say on the John Fain show we'd be doing 10 to 12, you have to get some that are really local. You have to get some that talk about bigger issues. You have to get some really that just hook people. And the stories that get people the most are always about people. They're never about concepts. And with so many stories on offer in Melbourne each day, how did you decide what makes the cut? We used to call it a unstable meritocracy. So it's very hard to do the pumpkin guy first. But sometimes Prime Minister's not available to 8.45. So you have to do something first. Uh, you wouldn't do the pumpkin guy. You'd do someone that set up the issue that the Prime Minister was going to talk about. 
I do remember a day where we were chasing the Premier on a particular very contentious state issue and we were also chasing someone who the night before had been walking his dogs after severe rain. The dog had jumped into a fast-flowing drain and he jumped in after it to save it and almost died. Like he went down the river for two Ks at, you know, this kind of down this culvert. Uh, we did him first. That's the story people were into. But you do have to weigh up. So, for example, on Talkback Radio where it's all about timing as well, when are people available? Who's there? Like, oftentimes you'll have an issue, you really want to talk about it. But if the three key people involved aren't available, all of a sudden there's not really much you can do with it. There's no one who's really across. There was only these people, the ones who were involved, they were in the room. Everyone else can't really add anything. Mm. Certainly on radio, and I think in other stories like newspapers as well, you're often asking, What do you think? But what you really want to get to is what do you know? And this is in talkback as well. When talkback callers call up and they say, this is what I think about this. Okay, that's great. But when someone calls up and says, this is what I know about this issue, because I'm from a particular field or my partner is working in a quarantine hotel or whatever, that's always the better stuff because that is always actually gives people something deeper. After seven solid years on the Fane program, that's seven years of waking up at 4am, Dan swapped the early starts for the life of a TV reporter in the business section. It was a medium he had no prior experience in. So I had a good relationship with uh, our business editor, Ian Verinder, who's a very experienced newspaper man, and he's come to the ABC. They didn't have at the time anyone in Melbourne because their porter was on leave or on a succumbent. So I uh, jumped in. I had worked in print, worked in magazines, obviously worked in radio. I hadn't really done TV. And so I just started. And I do not recommend that. However, that is what happened. So I just started TV. And I'd say my key training came from the kind of perplexed look that the camera person would give you once you'd finished. And they would kind of pull the head back from the viewfinder and just go, let's just do one more. So, Dan, just talk us through what happened when you were given the assignment of the Royal Commission. How did the structure of the commission and the way they put it together really lend itself to you telling the story of how the banking system had gone so bad? So I was thrown onto the Royal Commission, which was, at that stage, not expected to be that amazing. You know, there'd been more than 50 similar inquiries into the financial system in the previous five to 10 years. What this one did cleverly, which we worked out quite quickly, was they personalised it. They would have a person who had suffered a particular wrong at the hands of the banking industry, and then straight after them, they'd get the executive who was in charge of the section that had caused the problem. And then at the end of the year, they got the big boss executives who would charge the whole shebang. So you'd get that real line between person with problem crying in witness box, executive struggling to answer how problem occurred, regulator struggling to answer how systemic problem occurred across the entire industry for decades. You know, so you'd have those kind of flow through of being able to explain the story with pictures in a way that people could understand. Just on the pictures, I read that you were given really bad pictures as you were reporting the story out of coming out of the hearings. And it really made me think about just how important the pictures are for constructing a good news story in the job that you were doing. So television, this will shock you, is a very visual medium. (laughs) They're really quite into the pictures. You could have the biggest story in the world and if it's just audio, they do not care. It's too hard. So, look, it it is really hard. The good thing about the Royal Commission was they had live webcam. The problem was 
the vision was cut between either the witness, the person asking the question, or Commissioner Hayne, generally at the wrong time. So you have to get what's called overlay, you know, other footage of long, long lingering shots of the Westpac logo, you know, through the clouds. Um, there's all these kind of visual things, lots of graphics about numbers, yeah. lots of me standing outside an ATM with the logo of the bank in the background. So TV is that very visual thing. Whereas, for example, print, all you need to make a new article is one new incremental detail. You can put that at the top, that's the new bit, and you can background the rest. TV, you really need that visual element. And I do find often when I get onto good stories, particularly in things like, let's say, Freedom of Information, where you've got documents, it's good, but man, you've really got to work hard to create a visual element to explain why this is important, why this is a good story, here's the pictures we can use to make it happen. So the Royal Commission began with the process of the banks being asked to divulge their wrongdoings, and it struck me that that was essentially a story-gathering process in and of itself. So tell us about that. We called it um, bringing out the dead. And it was it was a 50-page summary from all of these institutions about every time they thought they had either broken the law or done something that was below community standards. It was a simple thing to say, was it not, Dr Henry? Well, we this may have said got it. To stop. I, I, can't, I can't recall the exact words that we used at the time. It was, it was pretty strong. It was pretty strong. What do you recall about the words that you used, Dr Henry? I don't recall the words that I used. Um... Was it acceptable, in your view, Dr Henry, for NAB to behave in a way that provoked the kind of response from ASIC that we saw in that letter? I've already answered that question, and the answer is no. Yeah. To say the da- Banking Royal Commission, there's only seven fortnights of hearings, and each of those seven was on a different topic. So they did all of superannuation in 10 days. They did all of consumer finance, credit cards, mortgages, car loans in 10 days. That's not enough time, right? You could, you could have done a Royal Commission onto any of these topics. And so it was a good way to probably work out what was out there and then direct it. Other Royal Commissions, other inquiries we've seen have started to use a similar thing, try and, try and get it all out, get it all out, and then we can f- choose what to focus on. And it, it is a good way to flush out the stories. But in, in broader issues, let's say you look at like broader stories that go on, it's not that simple. Things drivel out. There's incremental elements. Some stories don't go away because there's, say, a court case or a legal fight or an inquiry going on. And so there's always like a little incremental bit, which means it can make the papers next day because they only need a couple of sentences. Mm. So, you know, here's the latest new bit or tomorrow the report will be released or here it comes or here's the, you know, it's been this many days since this. So those things kind of roll along. I think the thing with the Royal Commission is it just focuses attention on a specific issue for a specific period of time. So when you came to write the book about the Royal Commission, you really took an approach, which would probably like the Commission, focused on people and people's stories. And you came across a guy called Bill who sat next to you in the Commission, and he had a pretty interesting story to tell, but it was one story and amongst a lot of stories. And you actually ended up really grabbing his story uh, with both hands and actually travelling to Western Queensland to visit his farm. What was it about Bill and his story that really resonated with you? So uh, Bill sat next to me and he reminded me very much of the people I grew up with. I grew up in the country, in country Victoria, and I could tell this guy was from the country because he looked very neat, but he also didn't look particularly at ease in this courtroom. Uh, And he told me his story and I kept telling him, please be quiet. 
we're in a courtroom, uh, you know, like, and, and Hayne keeps looking at me uh, and I am also trying to do my job here. And I went, I said, I'll talk to you, you know, so he talked to him at lunchtime and I, I got a bit of his story and I thought, oh, I can't really use this. This is really complex. But I interviewed him uh, in the hope that I could show it to someone at like 7.30 or one of those bigger programs and say, look, here's a guy, right? He's right here right now. You know, we could do this. And we couldn't. Uh, they they weren't interested. In the end, uh, he was still in town, so I took him for another interview in the same park and a much longer one to try and at least get his story so that I'd have it what we call in the can, which means recorded and we've got it. Generously, my boss at the time said, well, no, you have to go to the farm. I flew into Toowoomba, which is about an hour and a half straight inland from Brisbane, got into a car and just drove five hours straight, five hours in a straight line, and we got to Mandara, which is where Bill was at the time, where his property used to be. It is about personal stories. And when you hear the stories from these people, and I've heard a lot, particularly in banking, look, they do tend to form a pattern. You know, there's a reason why I have to tell people who contact me, look, I, this is not going to get on TV. I, like, I, I can't get all these stories on to mm. TV uh, just because they are kind of repetitive. Essentially, the person has made eh, – they're probably – bet that things were going to go well, things haven't gone well, often outside factors, weather, a marriage breakdown, whatever, and at the same time, the bank hasn't acted well. Now, whether they've broken the law or not, they generally haven't. They probably certainly haven't broken it to the kind of letter of the law that you could prove. But at the same time, the bank would never do everything the same way again. They certainly haven't behaved very well. But generally, the people haven't made the right decisions either. So you kind of get stuck in this loop. But to the bigger point, uh, it is about personal stories. It is That is what people connect with. Mm. Uh, it's why we struggle to talk about policy. It's why we struggle to talk about this kind of bigger picture stuff because mm. you need a person in front to be able to explain this is why... Uh, this is why it matters. This is why even on a story like, uh, you know, about, about like, let's say, power supply or energy, mm. we generally front it with someone with a power bill or a business owner mm. who is has to, they, they can't make their business work because energy costs are so high or they've or, or their issue or whatever it is. People struggle to get interested in an issue that they can't see human connection to. You're listening to Storycraft, a podcast about the art and science of storytelling. On this episode, a conversation with ABC's news journalist, Dan Ziffer. If you like Storycraft, check out The Story, a new digital publication that dives headfirst into the world of stories, exploring their power and mechanics. Head to the hyphen story.media or go to the link in the show notes to check out pieces by some of Australia's leading storytellers, including Clementine Ford on the joy and challenges of writing nonfiction and Dorian Linsky on the British island that used the power of story to drive some of the world's highest COVID vaccination rates. The story is for anyone who tells stories, loves stories, or is just curious about how and why they work. When the outgoing boss of AMP, Mike Wilkins, took the stand, the Commission heard new revelations that the company might have another FIFA no-service scandal on its hands 
this time in its corporate superannuation business. So despite having never done TV reporting before, you actually made this jump from radio to TV quite easily. How did you get your bearings in terms of the storytelling task when you jumped into business TV reporting? I'd say I haven't yet. (laughs) Uh, Three years in. But look, certainly in something like the Royal Commission where there's kind of two weeks of hearings and a month off, then two weeks of hearings, a month off. You're sitting with the same journos for most of the time. You're having lunch with them. You're meeting the same lawyers every day. You start to understand how these things go and start to understand how to tell these stories. What do I need to do in this period to get ready for this next period? So often in the gaps between hearings, I would go and interview experts in a really broad way about the particular issues in this field, kind of get things ready. Is that also to to increase your knowledge and skill you up on that topic as well? Not particularly. No, no. I mean, that's a benefit. Yeah. the benefit of it but no it's to have other stuff so that when you've got an issue in superannuation you've already got in the can the expert the legal expert in the superannuation saying well this is the key problem it's been this has been the key problem for 20 years are we going to sort it out you know you have to create those visual elements if they don't exist and they certainly don't in in a court case i mean i'm always amazed when i deal with people at a very high level sometimes that they have a good story to tell You know, they have something that is interesting that they are doing, but they, like I used to, just utterly lack the skills to envisage how it would come out as a TV (laughs) story. They've kind of they've they've written a really great press release, and they're like, "Check this out!" And you're like, "Well, that's a good start. I mean, there's something interesting in there, you know, but that is not." A story like that's not going to go on television. I'm really, you know, like in, and sometimes it's quite a surprise to people because, particularly when you're in an organization, it's your whole thing. This yeah. is, your, you know, if you're in comms, let's say for an organization, like this is all you do all day. You think this is the most amazing stuff ever. It's not. So, you know, like it could be, or it could be part of a broader issue, but often the thing that you think is interesting, no one else would. So, in a quiet moment, if you, if you could take people aside and mm. say, this is how you tell this story. Mm. What's the key bit of advice to them in this? Oh, look, often I tell people, look, this is really great, but this is advertising. Like you should, this is really, this is something that's really interesting, but like it's an ad. Like like it would be a really good ad and it sounds like this product has really good features or whatever, but like it's never going to make the news. That's it's certainly, you know, not in the ABC. It's not like it's just not going to work, right? And people, I think, struggle with that. I think they, it's really hard when I explain to people about the media. The media is great. It is capricious. Like some days they're really into issues on this topic next day could not care less people i know people view the media and they're like hold on that's exactly the same issue i was raising six months ago i couldn't get anyone interested and now it's on the front page every day for a week like what happened and often it's an external factor right often it's the federal government have announced something in field x or often there's been a growing awareness of this and there's been a particular flashpoint something's happened at the footy or something's happened, you know, like something's happened, uh, there's a big Netflix series about a thing, you know. But from the outside looking in, yeah, the media is capricious. It doesn't make sense. And that's why there's a definition between the free media and the paid media. Oftentimes when people have really good stories to tell, but they're ads, that's fine. When they're trying to get them into the free media, you have to kind of explain, look, this is interesting, but it's, you have to make it part of a bigger thing. No, no one is going to do a story on your amazing product or the thing you're doing but it is part of a bigger thing and sometimes that works because the reporters are doing other things i'll give you an example i'm doing a story about the evolution of working from home and the diff we've got new data on the amount people are doing you know post the height of the pandemic now i got contacted by nab saying hey we've got a new building in sydney normally i wouldn't care 
Who like I'm based in Melbourne. Like it's it's not a big thing, but their building is specifically built around the fact that their workers are going to be working there two or three days a week. And you're like, okay, actually that does work with what I'm doing. So I will interview the executive and we'll get some nice shots of the building. That'll just add an element. Now I wouldn't do a whole story about NAB opens a building, right? That's not interesting to anyone outside of NAB. Good good on them, right? But that's that's not that's not news, right? But it's part of a bigger story about a larger issue. So after all these years of news reporting, all that you've done, covering the Royal Commission, everything else, what makes you sit up and go, this is a story that needs to be told? It's very hard to distill, and this is what we want to get to the core of, because this this is it, right? But normally in journalism, you can it's easy to work out what will work, right? So a travel agent saying, uh, you know, our current restrictions on travel are bad, okay, that's a story. Um, the CEO of Alan, Qantas, Alan Joyce, saying it, okay, that has more power, right? Um, someone uh, complaining about potholes in their street, that's a story. You know, if the Prime Minister chose to complain to his local council about potholes in the street, that's a bigger story, right? Like, you, So you, you get a sense of the scale. It's not just about the power of the people. Often it's the size of the number, yeah. uh, whether financial or just the number of people touched by an issue. Yeah. You know, there's a reason we have more stories about Australian rules football than we do about water polo. People don't care as much about water polo. Now, people who do, good on them, right? There, there are places for them, but we don't cover water polo very much. We don't devote many media resources to it because the interest isn't there. There, you know, you, you're not down at the pool every night seeing it completely taken over by water polo players. You know, at the MCG Water Polo Stadium. You know, like so, journalism is about biggest, best, first, newest, all those things. But what it really is about is what I call the holy shit moment, which is when you get some information and you go, holy shit, like that is, what is that, right? And, you know, usually that is best judged in the newsroom when someone gets a piece of information or when something appears on TV and everyone just stops, like, what? What is that? And I remember that happened because it happened a lot on the show that I worked on, on the Fane show. I remember one particular day where Michael Kroger, who at the time was the president of the uh, Liberal Party, essentially blew up about his friend of 30 or 40 years, Peter Costello, who had left politics and was working but was still kind of belly aching about things that had gone wrong during his period and the fact he didn't become Prime Minister. And he just exploded for about 10 minutes straight. Well, look, John, after 35 years of being Peter's best friend, ally and supporter, even I've had enough, even I'm at my wit's end with Peter. And there comes a point where, um, you know, people have to move on. You know, Peter made a decision in 2007, I think the wrong decision, to spit the dummy and leave the parliament. He should have stayed, he should have been opposition leader, he would have been Prime Minister. Okay, he didn't want to do that, he left, fair enough. He'd made a great contribution, he was Australia's and is our greatest ever treasurer, no one will ever take that away from him. But for five years he's been like a bear with a terribly sore head, with a migraine headache, attacking everyone and sundry. So people have just had enough of all this criticism. You know when you hear that, you're like, oh, this is quite a big, this is quite a big deal. Uh, you know, because like, it's just so visceral, like you can see this power of that. Because it's political... heavyweights who've been friends for decades mm. and essentially he's blowing up his personal relationship mm. with his friend mm. and former Treasurer of Australia mm. in front of... An us. audience. Yeah. yeah. So it's often about what you don't expect. I'll give you an example from something I'm doing at the moment. There are people calling for our tax rate to be increased. Okay, that's surprising. Not that many people... You know, most people want... When we talk about tax, we generally talk about it being cut, taking less. Okay, those people are millionaires. So these are millionaires who want to be taxed 
more. Okay, and so the reason that that is probably going to be a better story than just man in street, woman at shop who think, oh, I think we should be taxed more is because, well, these people have a lot of money, right? You, it, it's counterintuitive that they would want to be taxed more. But it is often that cognitive dissidence that that's what, um, that's what makes a story, yeah. right? That's why, you know, we are always surprised by things. We like to be, humans like to be surprised. We like to be surprised by it. You know, it's less surprising, let's say, I'll give you a simple political example, right? In Canberra, if someone in a particular party says something mean about someone in the other party, that's not hugely surprising because, well, they're ideological opponents. They're trying to do different things on a particular issue. If they say something that's like the Costello Kroger example, really mean about someone in their party, well, that's kind of bigger news because, hold on, they're meant to be friends. Like they're meant, you know, it's, and so that holy shit moment is very frequently just about something that surprises people they don't expect. If a hot air balloon crashes in a paddock, Wow, like that's a story, particularly if you get vision. If it crashes in Burke Street Mall, even better. Um, don't wish it to happen, but I'm just telling you, yeah. if it's going to happen, that's where it should happen. In terms of making finance and business reporting interesting and... Tell me how. <laughs> I'm thinking about some of your digital work on Twitter that kind of thing, and, and I've seen you um, quite masterfully explain what should be really boring and uninteresting financial matters mm-hmm. in a ten tweet, a t- ten series of tweets with gifs. Is that something that you see as being important in terms of your kind of suite of, of, of storytelling tools? It's something I do as an adjunct. I mean, like Twitter is as a service um, massively overrated. Huge in the US. Huge in the US. In Australia, the number of people who look at it, uh, average monthly users, it's a very low percentage. What I do is often I'll write an article for the website, which has an audience of millions of people, Mm. uh, and then I will break it down and put it segment by segment by segment onto a thread in Twitter for a totally different audience who would not access that Mm. another way. So... You don't have to hit every single person, but people are going to consume things in different ways. Some people that will be on breakfast radio. Some people it will be on Twitter or um, something like that. Uh, you know, I, I, we don't do. I certainly I don't do business news on TikTok, but there are people who do, mm. um, and that's you know there is there's. Can you an see a day there. when you would do that? Oh, I can see a day that we could do that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Do you feel a pressure to be in a lot of places, a growing number of places? <sighs> I do, partly because as the media has got thinner and my entire media career has felt like arriving at a party at the end. Like, you know, you get there and you're like, there's a lot of empty bottles here. And like, but there's like the streamers are pulled down from the ceiling. There's still people there, but they're all a bit broken. And, you know, you feel like you have, this was a great party, but I've, I've missed it. And my, that's how my entire career has felt, right? Uh, every, everywhere I've been. And certainly now we have to do so much more. I, mean, I produce my own online articles. Now, someone looks at them before they pink onto the internet. But, you know, in days of not that long ago, that was someone else's job. 
you know, in days of not that long ago, you would have a producer to help you with your TV story. Yeah. And let me tell you, it is a great help. Like it is, <laughs> it is a lot easier to do this with two people than with one. Uh, it's, not a, it's even a lot easier to do with 1.5 than it is to do on your lonesome. So we are stretched and so you make decisions. So look, I probably do less work on Twitter now because I see it as a bit of a time vacuum and I'll wait until I have something substantial that is going to work for that hmm. uh, rather than do it for every single thing. We'll finish up in a sec, but I, I was just going to ask you at, at the end, and there's so many parts of your career that we haven't even touched <laughs> on here, fascinating parts, your your time producing for Andrew Bolt, your time covering covering the Obama 2008 election in the States. Spoiler alert, he won. <laughs> what is your best story? <sighs> it's really hard. Like you get to do so many good things in journalism, and I was thinking the other day as I was I – was, walking past uh, Nobu, which is a Japanese restaurant uh, on the promenade in the river here, part of the Crown Casino. And I was like, oh, yeah, I was at the opening. I met Robert De Niro. Yeah, like you just you just forget all this stuff. Like I don't remember all this stuff. I, I <laughs> heard a Simon and Garfunkel track and I was like, oh, yeah, I met them in a hotel room in New York. Forgot, totally forgotten. Yeah, they are like, you know, what you imagine. Um, I've got to do so many wonderful things and meet so many wonderful colleagues. I mean, that's been the really great part. If I think back to one, look, I got to spend an hour with Tony Bennett in his painting studio on Central Park uh, just before Christmas when I lived there. And I ran out of questions within about 10 minutes. I had about 10 minutes of questions about his Christmas album and, and stuff. And he answered them very kindly, and but really briefly. And then I still had all this time all this time. So we just chatted and we just had a lovely time. And I realised I've been able to do that with a lot of really famous, interesting people. And you get to see people in their situations. I've covered a lot of bushfires. Um, I have uh, gone to a lot of places where really bad things have happened. And you do get to see a lot. And the general consensus you get is that people are good People are good and they want to do good. There is a very small number of people who are the opposite. But in general, uh, people are doing their best and they, they do want good to come from it. That was Dan Ziffer, ABC business journalist and author of A Bunch of Bankers, A Year in the Hain Royal Commission, published by Scribe and still available in all good bookshops. You can find him on Twitter at Dan Ziffer. TikTok account is pending. You've been listening to episode one of our six-part season of Storycraft. If you like what you heard, then subscribe to us on Apple iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, and we'd love it if you could spread the word about Storycraft. Tell your friends, colleagues, and rate and review us on Apple iTunes. Doing this helps more people find the show. Storycraft is produced by Dashiell Lawrence of Retrospect and presented by me, Ben Hart. Ben Hart.